Welcome to The Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. In this program, we take a fresh look at some of today's challenges from the economy, education, politics, security, defense, and much more. You'll be prompted to see and think about things just a bit differently. Now, here are your hosts, Ambassador Harry Thomas and Chief Alex Morales. Welcome to The Spotlight. We are your hosts, Ambassador Harry Thomas. Hi, and welcome. And I am Alex Morales, the Chief. Harry, who do we have today? We're introducing Pam Keith, who's a Democratic nominee for Florida's 18th Congressional District. Mm -hmm. She won the primary with 80% of the vote. She's a daughter of a diplomat, former U.S. ambassador. She was born in Turkey and has lived in Morocco, Syria, and as you can tell, Brazil. (laughs) Um, She then attended Boston College Law School, but since I went to Holy Cross, I won't hold that against her. But in 2016, she became the first African-American woman to run a qualified campaign for the United States Senate in Florida's uh, history. And now she is a fresh face, a new voice of Florida Democrats, and the congressional candidate for Florida's 18th district. It's incredible. It's funny. I was looking at your, um, at your bio, and we speak the same language. All of them. Eu falo um pouquinho, eu falo um muito. Eu falava eu falo muito português. mais, mas agora tenho uma cabeça cheia de espanhol. Oh! Eu tenho que Quando ah. eu falar português, falo somente espanhol. Ah, eu, eu digo eu falo portunhol. Eu falo portunhol, francesinhol, espanhol. É português, é muito legal. Oh! Your Portuguese is very good. No, it's, it's, I, I struggle so much because I, obviously I still understand it perfectly, but, um, but when I want to say something, it like it has this, the, the Spanish creeps in and, the, and of course I have the, the French. The French there. come in like, too. Yeah, little, I'm like, ah. I'll mix them up all the time, all yeah, the time. Absolutely. absolutely. That is funny. Pam, you've lived a remarkable life filled with professional and personal achievements. Please tell us something about growing up abroad, your Navy service, mm-hmm. and your pride in our nation and its possibilities. So, um, as you mentioned, I was born uh, to my dad and my mom serving in the U.S. Foreign Service when I was a little rug rat. And, um, you know, the thing about being in a foreign country when you're a little baby is that you don't know you're different. Like, you don't know that, uh, you know, my first language was actually, uh, you know, baby talk Turkish because the person that I spent the most time with mm-hmm. was my nanny because my mom had her hands filled with my brother who was, you know, 19 months older than me and, mm-hmm. and quite, quite the, quite the difficult you know, <laughs> handful. So mom really kind of most spent most of her time with Vincent and I spent most of my time with Sadat. And, you know, so I, I I did not know in any way, shape, or form that there was anything unique about me. Although, even as a child, you begin to understand power dynamics. I mean, I understood that my parents were the boss of my nanny, right? But I didn't, to my way of thinking, the only explanation for that was we were Americans. Now, when you're two or three, that doesn't mean anything. You're just, it's like saying, you know, you're, you're, you're theories. <laughs> like, I don't know. But I just knew that it was good. And it was special. I knew that we were treated as dignitaries. You know, when we traveled, we had a special line that we went through because we had a diplomatic passport. And everybody was always a little bit obsequious to my dad. They were always like, no, Mr. You know, Mr. Keith and Mr. You know, so we saw that. That's what I grew up with. And 
So when I came home for the summers as a child, as a small child, I mean, all I knew was like my vacations in Kansas City with grandma and realizing that I did not like sitting in church for long periods of time um, and, and stuff like that. I mean, I just didn't get it. I didn't get anything about American culture. It wasn't until my parents divorced. I was about six years old. And um, we moved from Damascus, Syria to Oakland, California. And my, we went from a nuclear family, you know, with, with, with a staff in the house to my mom, basically a single mom in California trying to make it on, you know, alimony child support and trying to put herself back through school and basically barely enough you know money to get by from day to day and so that struggle became a part of my life and my reality too and then um you know, I went through all the years of trying to adjust to figuring out what it meant to be an American and, and what it meant to be an American overseas, both as a child here when we moved to Lexington, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. For the first time in my life, I was like, oh, my God, what is this racist <laughs> thing? Um, uh, and then, you know, being in Brazil and, and being in another Afro, a, a country with another very strong black community, but understanding how different the African community in Brazil and the African community in the United States really are right in brazil there is almost a total inculcation of afro brazilian um tendencies within the brazilian culture they absorb all of that but because they absorb all of it it's hard to put walls around what is and what is not black which is also which also means that it's hard for power to be concentrated amongst people because of who is and who is not black because nobody calls themselves black right so that that starts to not that starts to and so you still see the universities in brazil they're gonna be all white people right mm-hmm. <laughs> but they're not going to think of them themselves that way and they're not going to think of it as a racial breakdown they're going to look at it mm-hmm. as a socioeconomic breakdown. so that was something that i learned as as i traveled i'm um, certainly uh living overseas and and talking to my dad about why he would want to serve the united states you know, what made us proud to be Americans? What made us proud to be Americans was not the biggest military in the world, right? What made us proud to be Americans was freedom, opportunity, religious freedom. I mean, obviously, I lived in countries where religious freedom did not exist, right? Being in a country where you could have religious diversity and gender freedom, you know, women could do whatever they want. If you grow up in Muslim countries where culturally women were not really encouraged to be professionals, you come back home, you get to see women do whatever they want, however they want. That's jarring difference, right? You really appreciate that. And as a person of the kind of personality that I have, I was like, oh, thank God, I can get to do what I want. Um, So I got these contrasts, um, but I also got to deep appreciation for these different cultures and the beauty and richness, richness of those cultures. You know, Muslim culture, and especially Muslim culture as it expressed in Turkey and Morocco, the ones that I'd seen, was so beautiful and it had so many interesting nuances about it. And to have that nuanced comprehension is so important when you are talking about building bridges of understanding, cooperation, and mutual assistance through the, the acts of diplomacy, which I got to see my dad do in real time and got to see how the United States benefited from his on the ground knowledge of, of, of the nuances politically and socially and culturally. I got to see the United States benefit from that. You know, my father, like you, sir, was an ambassador. And when he was an ambassador in Gutter, he had a relationship with the crown prince of Gutter. Back then, it was still the old Emir, and he was an old guy, and he was kind of retrograde. He went to the UK for some medical treatment, and the son decided he was going to take over the country. My father, because he knew this guy, said, you know what, United States, we need to recognize the son. 
let the father go, recognize the son. That's the better move. That's going to stabilize the country. It's what's best for Qatar, and it's also what's best for the United States. So the United States was the first country to recognize Hamid bin Khalifa al-Thani as the proper emir of Qatar. And because we made that decision back in the 90s, when 2001 came along, 9-11 came along, and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia kicked us out of their country, the forward deployed troops are kicked out of Saudi Arabia. Where did they go? They went to Qatar. And Qatar welcomed our 10,000 forward deployed troops with open arms because it felt such an affinity to the United States and such gratitude that the United States recognized the emir and brought all of the rest of the world to recognizing the emir and that that was what allowed Qatar to flourish and become a modern uh, emirate. And that was the work of my father in real time and I got to see it and I got to understand. Wow, we really, that is powerful. That is a great family legacy. And uh, we know you're proud of your dad and Alex and I, who raised our children overseas in similar environments, understood that also. Alex has a question for you, Pam. Sure. Yes, Pam. Let me, as a military guy like me, bottom line up front, why are you better than your opponent? Oh, God, on what level am I not better than my opponent? <laughs> um, Please let us know. Well, first of all, I mean, let's start with I have a global worldview. He does not. Um, I have far deeper education. He, you know, he has a, a certificate from a sort of executive course he took at Harvard that he lets people believe is a bachelor's degree. It's not. <laughs> he, he, he's never been to college. He doesn't have a master's degree. He doesn't have a PhD or anything else. Um, you know, that's not the deal breaker, but like, stop bamboozling people. You didn't go to Harvard. Mm. Um, uh, I have way more life experience in business. I mean, this gentleman has really no business experience at all or corporate experience at all. He went from the military to being in Congress, basically had a short stint where things he tried to make a go of it didn't go well. And he went back into the military. Um, so he doesn't really have a real good grasp of court corporate America other than just being their errand boy. Um, I, I am completely different than my opponent and my um, empathy. I have a deep well of empathy for people who suffer, struggle, and have a difficult time. And I am in a constant thinking about how to make things better for those who live on the margins. My opponent doesn't recognize that there are people living on the margins, let alone what to do about it. He could care less. Um, also, I am far more grounded in just basic fundamental truth. I don't lie to people. I don't lie about me, I don't lie about you, and I don't lie about my party. I tell them the truth. That does sometimes cause more political challenges for me because, you know, there's this, there's this, you know, politics is mostly about power and control. It's less about policy. But, you know, I tell people the truth. And I have a longstanding habit of telling people the truth. And I feel like it is part of my obligation and duty to educate people, not to misinform and to manipulate people, which is what my opponent does. And then finally, I would say that, you know, I, I feel very much that the United States' greatest gift is its diversity and honoring and respecting what each individual brings to the table, their life path, their life walk. No two of us are the same. And so each one of us has merit and value inherent in our own creation and in our own contribution, whatever that is. My opponent does not feel that way at all. Um, he feels like the rights and privileges of the Constitution should ignore more to some than others because he believes wealth is tantamount to value, and it's not. We learned in this coronavirus experience who was valuable and who was wealthy. And guess what? 
are not the same people. So I value people. I, I value diversity. I honor people for who they are and what they are. They don't need to be anything different than what their creator made them for me to love them and to feel like a deep sense of, of purpose and serving them and making their uh, experience and their trip on this earth in these United States as good and as positive as I can make them to whom much is given, much is required. I've spent my life learning how to advocate and make the case for the biggest corporations in America. And they thought it not robbery to hire me to be their hired gun because I was damn good at it. And so I feel that the rest of my life will be used to be the hired gun of the people. And I am just okay with that. Wow. What a fantastic answer. You judging the people by their character, don't know what they have, where they're coming from. That's great. Absolutely. If you may have, uh, we got to take a commercial break. Sure. So we'll be right back in a minute. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to The Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. If you have a question or a comment about the program, drop us a line via email to support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Again, that's support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Now back to the spotlight. Welcome back. The other thing, Pam, today is National Character Counts Day. So this is perfect. But in Florida, we're all concerned about the Affordable Care Act, mm-hmm. health care, the coronavirus has really hurt all communities. Absolutely. How do, you, how do you propose to build on the Affordable Care Act? Well, the first thing we do is we shore up the Affordable Care Act. And, and I think we all know what the Supreme Court's going to do to it right after the election. Mm-hmm. But, but the reality is this. We don't have anything better than the Affordable Care Act at the moment. And unfortunately, even the Affordable Care Act is not the right solution for all of the people who have lost their employment and have lost their health insurance concomitant to that. Because if you don't have no revenue, what are you going to do in an Obamacare plan? Nothing. You still have to pay premiums, right? You still have to pay co-pays and deductibles. If you have no income, you cannot do that. So you are not accessing anything. Having a plan on paper that you can't actually go into a doctor's office with is nothing. So the reality is that we're going, to be, we're going to need to expand Medicaid first, because that is the program that gets healthcare to people in financial duress. And we're going to have to figure out how to modify Medicaid for these, what I call bridge, bridge plan, you know, uh, uh, plans or, or bridge timeframes for people who are temporarily unemployed, whom we believe will be able to be employed, you know, once we get America back on its feet. So rather than it being uh, Medicaid because you are, per, you know, uh, with children that are on like chip or something like that, rather than being a Medicaid because you are uh, permanently disabled, you are temporarily Medicaid eligible because of loss of employment. We can do that. And I think we're going to have to do that because the reality is otherwise they're just going to muck up our emergency rooms. And let's be honest, emergency rooms are not medical treatment where it comes to like preventative and sustaining treatment. You do not go to an emergency room for your diabetes medication or for your high blood pressure monitoring, Mm -hmm. right? That's not what you do. And if you're not taking your Plavix or you're not taking your your anxiety medication or whatever, 
your health, your health outcomes are going to start to deteriorate really quickly. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the stuff that keeps you from having a stroke or keeps you from having a heart attack, now you're not taking, you're going to have that stroke. You're going to have that heart attack and you're going to end up in our emergency rooms. But that's the worst way to do anything. So I say we're going to have to shore up the Affordable Care Act in the near term. We're going to have to expand Medicaid in the near term and move in the direction of single payer health care in the future. Why? Because we got to be honest with people. I started out by telling you that I tell the truth. And here's the truth. The labor market of the future is not going to look like the labor market of the past. Fewer and fewer people are going to be in steady middle management, nine to five jobs with benefits and and so on and so forth. More and more people are going to work for themselves. They're going to work for the gig economy. They're going to be project workers, consultants, and, you know, contractors, which means that more and more Americans will be responsible for providing health care for themselves and their family on their own. And if that is the truth, then why should we continue down this road that no longer fits what Americans really need? What Americans need is portable, lifelong coverage that they know they have at all times and that you walk into any employer with and walk any out of any employer with as well. Because too many people stay in dead end jobs they don't like because they need the benefits for themselves and their family. Too many employers hang on to employees that are not all that productive because they don't want to fire them. They need the benefits. Why are we making this a function of productivity? Why is this a reward for work? Why is it not just a simple component of citizenship like it is elsewhere? And just because we buy into that philosophy doesn't mean that the way we execute it's going to look like anywhere else because then we know Americans, we're quirky. We like doing things our way. So single payer does not mean single plan. You can still have 52,000 insurance companies, but you just have one payer who's paying those plans. And through the course of your life, you may choose smaller or bigger plans based on your need or what you want to contribute yourself or what your employer will contribute or whatever. But at the end of the day, if we know for sure that the next coronavirus that hits the United States, everybody's insured, everybody can take time off to be sick at home, everybody knows they're not going to go bankrupt if they get this thing, not only will be more able to contain the spread because people won't go to work, but we'll also make it easier for them to recover because they're not going to be dueling stress of bankruptcy with stress of trying to get better at the same time. Because that's what we do in America. We make every bad turn of life 10 times worse. We kick people when they're down, especially here in Florida, right? If you get cancer, you get cancer plus bankruptcy, right? So you have to figure out how to recover under those circumstances. In, in, in Florida, if you get unemployed, you get unemployed plus having to deal with an unemployment benefit system designed to frustrate you and kick you in your butt. Well, so we kick people when they're down. And I don't know why we do that. So what's the benefit of lowering the age of Medicare availability to 55? I think, I think it's, it's, it's moving more and more people into a system that is paid for through a single payer. That's the thinking behind that. So if you roll it to 55 and lower it to 50, then lower it to 45, and eventually you'll get there. That's one incremental way that people want to get to single payer. That may not be the way that I personally would get there. Like to my way of thinking, the better way to do this is to start phasing in babies now. Start to have start to have a single payer program that we set or what we call a public option, right? And start phasing people into the public option as babies. 
Like when you're born, you get into this program. And as you mature, you start paying into the program. And then pretty soon your fifties and sixties and you will have had this life insurance for the, this health insurance for the duration of your adult life. And then that becomes a norm in your life. Right. So I think that there's a, there are different ways of phasing in this thing. But people are like, oh, well, you're going to shed all these jobs. Not necessarily. Like I said, a lot of these insurance companies will still exist. It's just that the money comes from the government. And the way that that insurance is, 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 is administered is obviously going to be different. But if I'm a company, if I'm an employer, I love this idea because all of a sudden that uncontrollable cost, that administrative overhead, the need for benefits is uh, specialists at work, the people who don't like this plan or that plan are constantly complaining. Like all of a sudden I am absolved of all of that. And everybody who walks into my door is insured and everybody who walks out of my door is insured and it's no longer my headache. If I'm an employer or a small company that wants to grow, I'm loving that. Why wouldn't I love that? I'm a small business and one of my biggest, one of my biggest uh, expenses is healthcare, is uh, health benefits. And uh, I don't understand why it can be good for business when you have to take that expense. Especially because it starts to make you question what kind of employees you should be bringing in the door. I mean, let's ask, let's be honest about how much harder it is for people over 45 to get jobs. If they lose a job, it feels catastrophic for them because the idea of being able to get a comparable job at the comparable wages and benefits starts to get daunting because employers out there look at you and say, hey, you're a biscuit from needing lots of you know, blood pressure medication. And <laughs> right? And they're not going to say it's because of your age, right? They're not going to say that because that's illegal. <laughs> right. So, I mean, I'm a, I'm a labor and employment attorney. Listen, I'm telling you, I, I understand how this manifests itself in reality. In the, in the, in the, in the hey, Alice, don't call me biscuit. <laughs> no, I won. I won. I won. So how what is your opinion in uh, climate change and mm -hmm. how is harming Florida beaches and, beach, you know, beach, uh, the Everglades? All right, climate change is affecting everybody and certainly no one worse than Brazil. My God bless that poor little mm -hmm. country stuck mm -hmm. under another dictator. Um, so, so Florida is a country, is this, oh, it's a country, it is kind of a country, but it's not. Um, Florida <laughs> is, is a state that is uniquely affected by climate change mm -hmm. for two reasons. First of all, because we depend so heavily on tourism and our tourism is really related to our beautiful beaches mm -hmm. and our climate of sun. And of course, you know, our rivers, waterways and hot springs and all these other things. So, so that's a very big component of it. And sea level rise obviously is having really significant effects, not mm -hmm. just in terms of beach erosion, which of course it is, and we spend millions of dollars pumping sand from the bottom of the sea back onto our beaches to keep our beaches replenished so people can play on them. You, you know, that's a huge expense in Florida. But keep in mind that cities like Miami, Florida, and Miami Beach are dealing with these things called king tides. And king tides are tides that rise. And so you have this massive flooding inland into the cities and it becomes unnavigable. There are times when Miami Beach and Miami are unnavigable because of these king tides. So that's already having a really market effect on the habitability and the real estate prices in these lower lying areas. But also keep in mind that we're the state that can get easily hammered by Mother Nature's fury with these hurricanes that come down our way. Now, lately... The, the jet stream has been moving hurricanes to the north of Florida, and it's been hitting either at the top of the panhandle or it's been hitting sort of like on the Atlantic coast, North Carolina, South Carolina, and so forth. But that could change at any moment. 
right? And these storms are getting bigger and stronger. We had, you know, storm, the 500-year storm, like a five 500-year storms in a row, right? And, and if you think about the kind of devastation that could be wrought on the South Florida or Central Florida, if a hurricane of any significant size kind of just hung out inland over Florida, it would be absolutely devastating, especially where I am, where Lake Okeechobee is this massive body of water. You remember when, when Lang Train and Katrina overflowed? Remember what happened? Right? Like, imagine yeah. a Pontchartrain overflowing and flooding Miami and Fort Lauderdale. Like, vision, envision that wow. nightmare. Right? That is where we are because we built the wall around Lake Okeechobee. You can only go up or down. And it can only go up or down, but so fast. So if Mother Nature decides to catch an attitude with us, she can devastate Florida <laughs> and Miami like that. And so, of course, someone who's thoughtful about climate change understands the consequence of those devastating kinds of storms. Because those, those cause just like enormous amount of financial loss, uh, real estate and property destruction. So that's something that I pay attention to. But, you know, we have local problems, too. I mean, we have this blue-green algae blooms in our river. Those are not so much climate change related, although climate change and, and it does uh, exacerbate that problem. But, you know, it's, it's, it's the function of total lack of environmental stewardship and ecology, uh, you know, thinking when we allow runoff from Orlando to just kind of flow with, with you know, um, willy-nilly into Lake Okeechobee, we allow you know, surface pest, you know, surface uh, manure and stuff like that from ranching to flow into our waters. We allow pesticides like Roundup that we use in our uh, orange cultivation to flow into our waters and all of that pesticide that glyphosate feeds the algae. And then, you know, we put a wall around the lake so that that, that massive, you know, sugar cultivation could take place south of the lake. And, you know, if, if we don't like, if the level of the lake gets too high, we release the water into the rivers to the east and the west of Lake Okeechobee and they flow into either Tampa Bay or to the St. Lucie River Lagoon. I mean, the Indian River Lagoon. So, you know, we befoul all of our riverine environments with this algae from a lake that we can't figure out how to, to depollute. So, yeah, I mean, you know, everything about what we've done in Florida with respect to water management has been about short-term profits. None of it has been about long-term ecological environmental stewardship. None of it. And that's why the Everglades are drying up. And that's why we're getting saltwater incursion into our aquifers and all these other things. So like, it's a really, really multifaceted complex problem, but the reason it's gotten worse than it should be is because we keep electing people who do not believe in science. And that is stupid. And we could just got to stop doing that. <laughs> well, on that note, since we don't want people to be stupid and we want them to take advantage of the great education possibilities in Florida, uh, how are we going to expand education? How are we going to get more kids to Pell, into the Pell Grant program right. that you, you want to expand? Well, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to run sort of the macroscopic and the microscopic ideas that I have. I mean, the macroscopic, obviously, I think we're not doing our children any good services by continuing to tinker with an education paradigm that was created in the 1920s. Like we started in public education to get people to be able to read, write, do a little math so they could work on a farm. Then we advanced it so that they could work in a company or, or in a you know, manufacturing plant, right? And then it was like, oh, we need middle management. So we, you know, I'll go to college. But what we're not doing is preparing people for a technological future that's going to be dominated by artificial intelligence. We're mm -hmm. not 
preparing people for a future where they have to be far more savvy about their finances and their own home economics. We're not preparing people for how to have loving relationships and interpersonal communication with their families and their friends and their colleagues. We don't teach um, communication skills. We, we let people play 16 hours of, of gaming a day and not have human interaction. Then wonder why they act so weird. Like that's, that's what we're not doing. We're not being honest with what really takes to be a citizen, a modern citizen for a modern economy. And I think we need to have a suit and let's look at that. But in terms of how do we expand education opportunities, there are so many different ideas being floated to make post high school education affordable or free or debt free. And all of those I think are on the table. And I am certainly open and, and willing to consider any and all of those, especially those ideas that free up the, the wages of young people to be circulating in the economy rather than getting concentrated in the hands of financial institutions. So that's something I am down for in very and sundry, various and sundry levels. But I got ideas for South Florida. Let's not doubt that. I'm a, I'm a creative kind of chick. So here's what I'm thinking. Oh, I'm hey. thinking that we desperately need solar research. Uh, we need to up our solar research game with respect to storage of solar energy so that it can be dispersed when, it, when and where it is needed. We need to up our game with solar distribution systems, and we need to up our game in terms of solar panel manufacturing and solar tile manufacturing. But all three of those things can be done right here in South Florida, the Sunshine State, because we've got the one ingredient that the rest of the world don't got, which is year-round sunshine. And we have a FIU Honors University that's right there in my district. That'd be perfect for a global solar research center. We have a major uh, energy company that's housed right there in Jupiter, Florida, that could be the partner that builds the uh, distribution and infrastructure for the solar to really take off. And we have land to manufacture solar panels inland in, in Pahokee and Belle Glade, which will give people great jobs and then allow us to use some of the land there to move water south into the Everglades where it belongs so that we stop drying up our Everglades and stop sending water into our rivers. I've actually triangulated all the problems and picked them with one idea. I think that's pretty cool. Sounds well. Uh, Alex. Yes. Um, <clears throat> as a veteran, first of all, thank you for your service. As a veteran, we always uh, uh, look for, see how can we improve uh, veterans when they re mistake and come back to the civilian life or what they serve, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, what do you think we should do for prescribing it to improve the BA? Right. Mm -hmm. Two things. I'm so glad you asked that. First of all, Alex, thank you for asking that. <laughs> Second of all, I'm going to say I've got two solutions that I want to talk to, to the audience about. Number one, we have got to move the VA altogether out from domestic discretionary spending budget and put it under the Dodd budget. Veterans care, care for warriors ought to be baked into the cost of war and be funded at the time that we fund war. So my belief is that VA should be moved under the Department of Defense and that every time you are increasing troop levers, you are concomitantly increasing VA funding with it being an automatic exercise of law. And so every time you are borrowing to increase, go on expeditionary warfare, you are also necessarily borrowing to care for those warriors when they get back so that they don't have to beg and plead on their knees to get their benefits. So if we cannot afford to care for our warriors, then we clearly cannot afford to go to work. So my view <laughs> is that we need to stop playing and stop thinking that veterans are an afterthought. 
Every time you create a member of the military, you are creating a future veteran. So quit playing. Put it all within one bed budget so that it's always there sequestered waiting for them. It is always waiting for them and gaining interest while they're serving so that when they come out, it's there. They don't have to beg for it. It's right there. And every person that I talk to, Democrat, Republican, Independent, they think that's a great idea because it is. Um, and then the second thing that I really want to do is address what I consider mental health of veterans, which is is unique to the way that military training makes people um, feel like admitting that something is wrong is a sign of weakness because the military trains you to not be that guy. Don't be the one that's complaining. Don't be the one who's talking about not being able to sleep at night. Don't be the one who admits you're scared. You're not supposed to be that person because you're supposed to be AJ squared away. And that mentality affects how people deal with what's going on in their lives, both on active duty and afterwards. So here's my solution. I think we should build a network across the country of what I call veterans firehouses. And you know a firehouse. It's open 24-7, 365. People can come in and come out. I think we should have veterans firehouses where any veteran at any time of day, 24-7, 365, could come in and have a hot meal, have a play a game of pool, watch a football game, and most importantly, have a conversation with another veteran. It is staffed by veterans for veterans. During the day, they can have AA meetings, they can have job training, they can help you get your veterans benefits or whatever. But at any time, day or night, if you are feeling isolated, if you are feeling anxious, if you are feeling like nobody understands what you're going through, you can go to your local veterans firehouse and find a judgment-free, non-clinical environment in which you can just let it all hang out. And the folks there are trained to engage with you to make you feel like your problems are problems that are understood, that they respect and admire what you've been through, they get it, and they get you the help that you need so that you don't think that taking your life is the best answer, so that you don't think that drinking or taking drugs or, God forbid, putting a gun in your mouth is the only out to your psychological pain. That is an abomination. And so we should create an environment where every veteran, any veteran, can come in out the cold and have somebody put their arms around them and say, hey, man, I value you. You're good. You're important. We need you. And we're going to get you the help that you need. And we're not going to judge you. And we understand and we get it. And if we do that for all of our veterans, I believe that we will dramatically decrease not just suicide, not just homelessness, but depression, anxiety, and all the concomitant symptoms of PTSD that so many of our troops deal with in silence. If we do that, we will have done our veterans a true solid. And that's what I want to see happen. I agree. You couldn't say it better. Well, uh, Cam, you are so energetic. Um, We're nearing the end, but how do you, how do you keep so fit while you're running for Congress? Well, I don't know that I am all that fit, uh, to be honest with you. I do work out. I mean, I do like to work out. It's a big part of my life is to um, work out. And, and I like, I love, you know, my favorite workout is kickboxing. You know, I love to kickbox. Mm. I like to hit things. I'm very aggressive. <laughs> um, but I just, you know, I have an energy and a passion for what I do because I feel like I'm living my purpose. And when you feel like you're living your purpose, when you feel like you are using, you're putting what you have to its highest, best and best use, then you remain, you know, you remain energized for the, for the, for the day's tasks. You know, all I want to do for the rest of my life is put my energy into making things better for people. 
And if I can do that, if I'm blessed to be able to do that, either at Congress or in some other way, um, I'll, I'll feel all right about my walk on, on this earth. You know, like I said, to whom much is given, much is required. And I've been given a great deal. <laughs> I've given been given so, so many blessings that, um, you know, I'd just rather be the people's warrior. That's what I want to do. Well, that is a great term to call yourself the people's warrior. Uh, I am going to, we're going to thank you. We hope you come back once you are elected. And I'm going to let Alex take us out. Well, Pam, thank you so much. I wish you the best. And again, we hope you come back when you get elected. Of course. Goes without saying. Com prazer, as they say in Portuguese. Muito obrigado. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. If you have a question or a comment about the program, drop us a line via email to support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Again, that's support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Now back to The Spotlight. Welcome to The Spotlight. We are your host, Ambassador Harry Thomas. Hi, and welcome. And I am Alex Morales, the Chief. Harry, who do we have today? Alan Cohn's an award-winning journalist. He's the Democratic Party's candidate for the 15th district that encompasses much of Central Florida from Tampa to Orlando. Alan, you are trying to flip what's been a reliably Republican district. Thanks for joining us. Please tell us the difference between you and your opponent. Well, there are huge differences. It seems rather amazing, but I am running in 2020 against a guy who wants to end Social Security as we know it. Uh, He wants to uh, gamble it in the stock market. He wants to raise the retirement age. He wants to get rid of the Affordable Care Act in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, He believes the PPP uh, aid that's helped so many millions of Americans through this, this terrible time was, quote, a waste of money. Now, these may be uh, popular at the yacht club that he belongs to after he sold his business for $40 million, but the biggest difference between him and me is I'm running for that guy who lost his job a couple of years ago before the pandemic, who may have gotten another job but doesn't pay nearly the same amount of money. I'm running for that woman who... uh, has the Affordable Care Act or insurance through their employer that comes with a four to $6,000 deductible, which means for many families, it's too expensive to use if they get sick, if a kid gets sick. You have to pay for the $6,000 uh, until your plan pays 80% of your claim. That's who I'm running for. That is the major difference between us. Wow, what a tremendous answer. I turn it over to Alex for the next question. Yes, thank you, Congressman. Uh, what, how do you should, how should our nation respond to COVID nineteen that has cost us many jobs and home? What is your opinion? How we should respond as a nation, sir? Well, number one, we should start responding as a nation, which would be a refreshing change from uh, the current administration. I mean, after all, they were left a playbook. 
by the last guy. And it was never open and read. If we had only started to shut down the country a few weeks earlier, we would have saved tens of thousands of lives, according to a study at Columbia University. And the fact that we open up the country way too quick. I mean, I understand people are tired, um, but look at what the result is. Uh, we are going into a third wave that will take how many more lives? Um, you know what? There's been a lot of debate about masks. In, in my opinion, wearing a mask is the patriotic thing to do. And the fact that some people have made that into a partisan or political issue is incredibly un-American because our constitution uh, gives us a lot of personal freedoms. It does not give us the freedom to harm others. In fact, there is something in, in that constitution that talks about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, well, you know, that, um, that says it all. Uh, so, look, it's, uh, start, it's, uh, it's time that we start listening to the scientists. Uh, Dr. Fauci uh, is an American hero. And if the president actually listened to him, uh, we, we would be far better off. And, and here's something interesting. I'm running against a guy who keeps on voting against a mandatory mask ordinance in his community. He's putting pictures of himself on Facebook at restaurants without wearing masks, leaning into to the ears of elderly uh, citizens. God forbid anyone gets sick because of these um, reckless events. That's on him. I mean, we have to start acting like Americans uh, and uh, patriots. Uh, that's how we, we respond to this pandemic. Well, thank you for that. We don't want to presume by calling you congressman yet or <laughs> you are uh, elected. We're just hopeful. Uh, but obviously, Dr. Fauci is, is a hero to all of us. And we really are uh, disappointed at what the president has been saying about him the last the last few days, uh, but let's let's move on just a little bit. Very, this has impacted the economy, as as you said. How has the Paycheck Protection Program worked for Floridians, and how would you try to improve it? Well, number one, it has worked, but it has not worked uh, nearly well enough. N number one, when we talk about. Uh, small businesses. I talked to the owner of a small construction firm who applied on day one and was rejected, while there were larger businesses like the owner of the Ritz-Carlton, who's a, a buddy of Donald Trump, got something like $20 million. Uh, and that it was because the rules that were written by Congress were changed by the Small Business Administration. The Paycheck Protection Act has helped hundreds of thousands of Floridians, um, but you know, it has run out. And the fact of the matter is that the, the Congress, the Senate in particular, and the administration uh, wanted to pass something saying something is better than nothing. But hold on one second. If your family's bills are $1,200 a month and you're only getting $600 a, a month from a, a, a new version of the Paycheck Protection Act, mm -hmm. that doesn't help you. And, and it's almost as if that idea was concocted by people who really don't understand how most families live. If, you, if, uh, if you're talking about the Paycheck Protection Act, there are many uh, families in my congressional district that live paycheck to paycheck. So number one, we have to uh, make sure that new legislation is enough 
that families can pay their bills. And it has to go out to them as long as we are dealing with this pandemic. People don't want to stay home. They don't want to not work. We are Americans. We are about hard work. But if we don't help um, you know, people and we, if we don't help small businesses, uh, then we are going to be in even more trouble than we are right now. And here's another point. Our municipalities, whether you live in a small town, a small city, or a larger city, their budgets are absolutely um, torn to pieces right now. In Hillsborough County, where we live, um, there is talk about layoffs amongst teachers and amongst uh, uh, employees of the school system. Uh, this, you know, part of the federal government response to this has to be helping municipalities deal with this, or, or we're going to have a worse problems. Um, than we have now. And here's another factor that my friend Patrick Kennedy, the former congressman, talked about. After the pandemic is over, we're going to have another crisis. And that is the mental health crisis from all everything that we've talking about. Unemployment, which leads to the stresses on American families, that leads to things like uh, alcoholism and drug addiction and other mental health issues, domestic violence. We're going to have other bills to pay, and we better be prepared to pay them. That's that's a great segue because uh, I was my next question was going to be about mental health and what are your points and opinion about what can we do to strengthen the mental health uh, in your district? Well, you know what, um, this is a, a a stain on on Florida that Florida ranks dead last nationwide in the amount of money it spends on mental health. Uh, you know what, uh, we want to complain about mass shootings. Uh, but the resources are not there uh, for for whether it's law enforcement or mental health professionals to reach out and to deal adequately with those who obviously have have problems. Um, it, it, and that is a statewide issue. Um, that is something that, you know, the federal government does have to get involved with, as I mentioned in my last answer, that we have to make sure that states have adequate resources uh, because, Look, um, you know, we are also dealing with an opioid crisis, and all these things are linked together. Uh, people are, are finding or, or looking for escapes to deal with the, 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 the unprecedented pressures and stresses on our lives right now. Uh, and the, the federal government has a responsibility uh, and to, to help deal with that. Your passion comes through. Uh, that is clear. We are... Uh, about three minutes from our, our break, but in, in those um, three minutes, clearly not only do police, uh, law enforcement personnel need mental health, but the average person needs mental health uh, uh, assistance. Children, how can Congress change that? Are you going to push for a new CARES Act? Well, the, the, the CARES Act, um, as I mentioned, would be something modeled along the lines of what, what my friend Congressman Patrick Kennedy has talked about. Uh, it has to be s- targeted and specific to deal with what's going to happen after uh, COVID-19 uh, is under control. Uh, so that, that you know, requires federal legislation uh, and the determination. And what's really important to, to, to understand about this is, you know, mental health, um, you know, drug addiction, uh, alcoholism, uh, other problems, are they're not Democratic problems. They're not Republican problems. 
They're not problems if you don't have any party affiliation. These are an American. These are American problems, and so um, these will affect Republicans and Democrats and independents. And it's really the responsibility of the Congress to come together and and look after our American family. Well, Alan. Thank you very much. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to The Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. If you have a question or a comment about the program, drop us a line via email to support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Again, that's support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Now back to The Spotlight. Well, we're back with Alan Cohen. And Alan, um, what do you think we could do to prevent more death like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor's? Well, number one, uh, there, are, there are a lot of things. And, and, and we were just talking about mental health in the last segment. Uh, we have to find better ways to deal with people who are having mental health issues. Uh, and and it, it, you know, our police um, are being asked to, to deal with a lot of things that they should not have to be uh, dealt with. Number one, here in Florida, it takes more training to become a barber than it does a police officer. That's true. Number two, um, when you're dealing with a domestic situation or somebody who is having a mental health crisis, uh, acute crisis, um, our police should be able to respond to a scene uh, accompanied by a mental health professional or somebody who is expert in domestic violence. The, the object here is to de-escalate these situations, not escalate them. Uh, th- there are other things as well. Number one, our police departments need to be a reflection of the communities that they serve. And too often, they are not. There are other things that have become so obvious, uh, in not only with the George Floyd case, but uh, with uh, the Eric Garner case and all the other unfortunate incidents. We have to do away with chokeholds, find more uh, reasonable ways and effective ways to dealing with, with situations that may get out of control. Uh, we need to weed out uh, police officers uh, who uh, may have their own issues uh, that might not make them great law enforcement officers. Uh, we have to have a database so officers who get relieved of their positions in one community uh, are not able to go to another community uh, and, and can get employment as a police officer if they have a history uh, that, that, that's questionable. We have to stop no-knock warrants, uh, which led to, you know, another tragedy. Um, these are just some of the things that, that, that I would be supporting. That is a great answer. We know that the police have a very difficult job, that they are brave and they're, they're patriots also, uh, but there are bad apples. So clearly we're concerned and uh, many, many people in the community in Hillsborough County are calling for the end, the repeal of qualified immunity. 
Yeah, what's your position on that? Well, I, I agree with that. Um, because if you put yourself in, in a, a position of a law enforcement officer, uh, you know, and, and things get hot, he, you know, hot and heated in situations, but if you know in the back of your mind uh, that um, there is a price to pay uh, if things, uh, if you behave in a certain way, including the, the, the uh, a, a, you know, a legal ramification for yourself, um, then that is something that, that will change behavior. Now, um, look, the vast majority of our, our police officers are great people. I am good friends with many law enforcement officers on the local, state, and, and federal level. And, and they, know, um, they know the officers uh, that work within their departments and organizations uh, that should not be there. Uh, so uh, I don't think a good officer uh, would, would, would uh, have a real issue with, uh, with doing away with qualified uh, immunity if that is going to get rid of this constant um, drumbeat of tragedy and a spotlight being uh, put on police officers when many of them on a daily basis are preserving and protecting our, our lives. That was a wonderful answer. Uh, and once again, Alex. Yes, uh, Alan, going back to the economy, because people are always uh, talking about the economy, what do you think should be the plan to reopen the, to reopen the economy? Well, number one, I, I'm going to take my, my guidance from uh, the scientists. I think that, look, no one wants the economy shut down. Uh, but look, th there's also reasons why certain countries uh, who shut down the, their, their, their countries kept it, it closed down for the, the right amount of time are, are now back uh, in, in terms of growing, uh, growing economies. Uh, and this is something that we, ha we have to do. We have to start uh, using our heads. Masks, as we have talked about, are very important. Social distancing uh, are, are important. Uh, I'll tell you what's, 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 um, what we can't do is we can't have large political rallies where people don't wear masks and they rub elbows with each other. And this is a matter of leadership. This is a time when leadership is important where role models are important, uh, where government is important. Uh, and, and so we begin there. Great. The next thing, you, you, were, you referred to Patrick Kennedy, whose granduncle inspired us all. Who inspired you to get into politics? And who inspires you today? His granduncle. uncle. <laughs> 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 um, I remember growing up uh, and reading children's books about JFK and his life story, and I became fascinated, and uh, it was my motivation. Um, I grew up in a family where my dad worked for CBS television, where uh, he took us up to our first national political convention when I was five years old, uh, and um, my mom worked as a poll worker, uh, and uh, you introduced me uh, to local you know, lawmakers, took me to, to uh, events for presidential candidates, and I caught the bug. And then, I, you know, I was, you know, given a job, uh, you know, being Walter Cronkite's gopher. 
uh, at uh, both the Democratic and Republican national conventions. And uh, I fell in love with both uh, politics and journalism. And I've worked in the nexus of that uh, for for many years. Um, And along the line, you know, I grew up with, with, you know, with Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy as as heroes of mine. I, I grew up, you know, in the room uh, when Mario Cuomo gave that incredible um, keynote address at the 1984 Democratic National Convention. And, and I, like um, many of the people who are watching this, were inspired uh, by Barack Obama and his reminder to us that uh, there are not red states or blue states. There are the United States. I, I think that um, we're, we're tired of the chaos uh, of the last four years. And we, we, we longer uh, for a, a time when, you know, not that we don't have politics and disagreements and not when things are not political, um, but when we start acting like Americans uh, again. One of the uh, others that inspired all three of us was Cesar Chavez, Cisse Cuegan. Mm-hmm. And now you have a, a large Latinx community in, in Hillsborough uh, County. Many are recent immigrants from Puerto Rico after the failed uh, response, and some say with the high-handed response uh, to the hurricane. What are you saying to people inspired by Cesar Chavez, such as, such as the three of us? Uh, you know, look, um, the other thing about Hillsborough County and, and Polk County is that these are large agricultural communities. This is where America's strawberries come from. Uh, this is where our citrus comes from. Uh, and, you know, every year uh, there are people who are looking to, uh, to look after their families and, and, uh, and, and come here uh, and work. And every year we hear stories about uh, growers who don't have enough people uh, picking their crops and, and those crops dying uh, in the ground. Uh, so that, that's one thing. Uh, you mentioned Puerto Rico. Um, look, I, I cannot... Uh, forget that um, picture of uh, the president throwing paper towels at, at Puerto Ricans in the aftermath of, of that hurricane. And so how, do I. <laughs> how, we, how it was talked about that somehow uh, what befell Puerto Rico was, was not happening in the United States. Um, the fact is Puerto Ricans are Americans as much as you and I, uh, and uh, many of them uh, are still dealing with, uh, with situations that they came here uh, because that that uh, uh, that territory remains devastated from that hurricane. And um, for our response to that hurricane to be any less than it would be if it was Florida or Louisiana or Texas or Mississippi or Alabama or any place else is in it in it of itself un-American. I turn it over to Alex. That was I am sure appreciates that that answer. Well, as a tr- as a Puerto Rican myself and a person who served my country for twenty one years, I appreciate your comments because it, it's usually people tend to believe that we kind of like second class citizen when in and be in true we are American, and uh, I, I really appreciate what you just said there, sir. I really do. What, what do you think about the U.S. rejoining the Paris Accord? 
and how you know climate change and is affecting you know the United States. We, let's run. I mean, uh, look, you know, as a an investigative <laughs> journalist, uh, I've known for for years that even uh, you know Democratic and Republican uh, administrations, the EPA has not been. Uh, funded properly, and I have covered situations where I've, I have found polluters uh, where there's no real mechanism to uh, by the EPA to um, to crack down on that. Uh, so the the fact that this administration has not only left the the Paris Climate Ag- Agreement, but rolled back so many uh, regulations involving the EPA uh, that has made the situation in the United States uh, even worse. Uh, in terms of of, uh, of both climate change, uh, fuel efficiency, uh, is is awful. Um, The fact is, this is a threat, uh, not only to our world, or the world that we leave to our children and our grandchildren. Um, This is a threat to our our economy. You know, I, I talked for a moment about our reliance on agriculture in this congressional district. It's becoming increasingly difficult for strawberry growers and citrus growers to irrigate their crops. It is, the Florida depends upon the tourism industry. We are dealing with sea level rise. We are dealing with beach erosion. We are dealing with hurricane seasons that are becoming increasingly more violent and more often. Uh, and so, by not doing what we can, uh, we are cutting our own throats. Uh, and, uh, you know, look, this is something you, you, you both have experience with the U.S. military. The U.S. military takes it seriously. So, therefore, the administration and the Congress need to take it seriously. Alan, in my time overseas, my wife and I taught everybody uh, living with us, how to make bagels, how to make kasha. Well, what we want to know is, where's your favorite pizza place? <laughs> if I were to be honest, it would not be here. Uh, you know, um, I worked eight wonderful years in New Haven, Connecticut, which uh, has uh, Sally's Pizza, Pepe's. Our, our personal favorite was was Modern, um, and uh, you know, it's really just a, a different slice of pie. What's really interesting uh, right now is uh, my son is a senior at Fairleigh Dickinson University. He's a college baseball player. That's right outside New York City. So go- he goes on these pizza, pizza excursions uh, to places like DeFaro's in, in Brooklyn, who a lot of your viewers and listeners will, will, will know, uh, and around New York, uh, New York City. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we do miss that, and we, we do enjoy it when, when we get up there. Well, here you have it, Mr. Alan Cohen, Democratic candidate for the 15th district seat. Thank you so much for your time, sir, and good luck uh, on your elections. Thank you so much. I hope that you will come back and talk with us after you're elected. See you later. All right, anytime. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into the Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. Be sure to join Chief Alex Morales and Ambassador Harry Thomas again next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again next week.